Star chef Marcus Samuelson was determined to start a new restaurant in South Florida, even during a deep recession. It was very important for us to open, to not give in to the pandemic. And during a reckoning with racial and social justice. It means something to be in Overtown with such an important history, in particular for the black community in Miami. I'm Tom Hudson. Today on the Sunshine Economy, hear from chef Marcus Samuelson. Also, the banker, baker, and cleaner in the pandemic economy. This is my only problem loan, so I guess I should be fortunate that we've only got one. Miami is a perfect example of what happens, why companies cannot scale. My income probably was slashed by 70%. It's time to get my groove back. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Restaurants in Miami had about half the number of customers sitting in their inside and outdoor dining rooms on December 3rd compared to a year earlier. That was an improvement from four months prior. In early August, restaurants had only about a quarter of the diners eating in compared to a year before the pandemic. And for more than two months, no one was eating in indoor dining rooms when they were forced to close down to slow the spread of COVID-19. This was the environment Marcus Samuelson forged ahead to open a new restaurant in Miami on December 3rd. He's a celebrity chef with all the credentials, international experience, top reviews, a collection of James Beard Foundation Awards, the Oscar of food, TV cooking show contestant, mentor and judge, cookbook author, travel, food, television show host. He opened his Red Rooster Harlem restaurant in New York City in 2010. The Marcus Samuelson Group now has a dozen owned or licensed restaurants in five countries. His Red Rooster Overtown is the newest. It finally opened after two false starts held up by the pandemic last year. It comes with the hype that can surround a celebrity chef opening a spot in South Florida. But there are some big differences. It opens amid a deep restaurant recession. The restaurant is not among the hotels and beaches focused on tourists. It's in the historically black Overtown neighborhood, and it opened during a racial reckoning. The business climate for restaurants was a lot different when he started the project five years ago. That's when the Neighborhood Community Redevelopment Agency began looking for a restaurateur to open inside the Clyde Killens Pool Hall. It's a two-story building on Northwest 2nd Avenue. That was once the entertainment district in Overtown. The building's namesake, Clyde Killens, ran a hotel and nightclub in the area in the 1950s and 60s. He described what that area was like to the PBS program Eyes on the Prize. That King Cole, uh, Sammy Davis, uh, George Kirk, all those guys, when they come down here, they worked at, at, at Miami Beach. <clears throat> but their shows in the hotel, they off at 2 o'clock. And they all would come over to John. Then they would go in the line and they'd be 7, 8, or 10 years and they'd jamming. Now this was before I-95 raised parts of Overtown. The pool hall where Samuelson opened his restaurant sits just one block east of the expressway today. Six years ago, the local community redevelopment agency, which owned the property, began looking for an operator to open a restaurant and entertainment venue. The strategy was to, quote, attract patronage to this entertainment and cultural district of Overtown throughout the day and into the late evening. That's according to a request for proposal. 
Samuelson won the bid in early 2016. A year later, he bought the property, and the redevelopment agency extended him up to $1 million in grant money to renovate and build out the space into a restaurant and club. Back then, the economy was booming. Unemployment had been falling for years. It was below 5% in Miami-Dade County. Incomes were rising, and tourism was red hot. By the time Samuelson opened for paying customers on December 3rd, the unemployment rate in Miami-Dade would be the second highest in the state. Tens of thousands of hospitality jobs would disappear, tourism would be a hint of what it was, and tens of thousands of restaurants nationwide would be closed down. Yet the chef pushed ahead, making it one of the highest-profile restaurant openings despite the deep recession the industry is still experiencing. According to data from Open Table, in-person dining was down about 15% in the last week of January in Miami compared to a year earlier. I spoke with Chef Samuelson last week over Zoom. He had just returned to New York after spending six weeks in Miami getting Red Rooster Overtown open and running. Why open the restaurant in the middle of a pandemic which has an uncertain end? 2020 will be the year for us, for all of us in this country, right, that we will remember the way um, we can tell our grandchildren about it. But it's also a test to humanity, kindness, effort, volunteers. And it was very important for us to open this year, to not give in to the pandemic. And um, it's a lot of pride and gratitude that I said to my staff, because that was the same staff that was out there serving, volunteering during the summer and feeding its community. There's a lot of people that came together and said, no, we're gonna open, we're gonna keep these jobs. We created about 90 jobs in a part of town that needs jobs, sometimes you have to do things that doesn't necessarily make sense from a linear point of view, but you have to do it because it's bigger than yourself. And opening Red Rooster over town is much bigger than ourselves. Chef, tell me about the business conversations that you had to have internally with your business operating entity in March and then in June, and then in the fall to ramp up as you were, you know, still on the hook, of course, for all of the expenses of this restaurant that you had planned on opening six months before you were actually able to welcome customers. You can't look at from a bottom line sheet right away, right? You have to look at what, what is the signal that we are opening during the pandemic? What are we signaling by opening in Overtown. So it takes people that are here for the long run. All the loss of COVID are, you know, they're local. They're, they're you know, Florida State is very different than New York, New York State, you know. And this was constantly changing as we were, you know, going in through the summer and we we're going into the fall. But I believe, you know, we've been working on this for five years already, right? It took us five years to get the land, build, you know, renovate the place, build it up. And in the scope of things, my son is five right now. When he's 10 or 15, you know, there's going to be documentaries. There's going to be so many different conversations about this year. And we can all look back and say, hey, we didn't shy away. We didn't take these right out. Uh, and the other part is also, this has also been the summer of social justice, right? The year of social justice. And it means something to be, operating the former pool hall in Overtown, such an important historical history, particularly for the Black community in Miami. So to create 90 jobs, the majority are local, all of that 
And I think also that's why the restaurant is so successful at this point, right? Because people are going to Red Rooster because it's beyond just going because they're hungry. They're, they're part of something. And that is something I truly appreciate. I want to ask you about the social and racial reckoning and opening a restaurant and, and operating in the hospitality restaurant food industry. I know that you've written about that. Back five years ago, when Miami popped up on your radar, let me rephrase that actually, Chef, because I'm sure Miami has been on your radar as a culinary outpost for years before that, wasn't it? Listen, I was so fortunate to be part of the community in many ways through Lee Schrager, South Beach Food and Wine. I think I've done 15 of them, but also through the chef community. I've been offered to do restaurants on the beach so many times, and I've always said not, no, because Red Rooster is something that we particularly want to be in an African-American community and of an African-American community. So people look at things and say, hey, they're successful. This has been an eight to 10 years journey. Had it been difficult to say no to a more, I suppose, high profile location on the beach, a more traditional center for a star chef like yourself to enter the hospitality industry in South Florida with a bang? No, it was never difficult. I, I was probably offered 10 different places on the beach. <laughs> no, I just didn't. I, I, I just didn't think that everything not for you. Right, I didn't like the narrative on it. So it's not not having the opportunities, but it's actually being privileged to have the opportunities that allows you to say no. You have to say no if you have more different channels. This is a traditional location for me. If you think about Overtown, was historically the entertainment uh, part of Miami. So what we are doing is to restore that, to bring that back. Let me ask you about some of the specifics of the deal. Your operating group has a dozen restaurants, some independently financed by investors. Others are licensed to operators. This Red Rooster Overtown is yours. It's not licensed, correct? No, it's absolutely not. Okay, <laughs> no. just making sure. I laugh because, like, I, you know, we're we're knee deep. <laughs> well, my wife and I, so, my wife and son and I moved yeah. down for for the open. We we just came home after six weeks, and it was amazing. But uh, when you're knee deep, you when your life and something is different, and when you knee deep, you you move in the family. Knee deep, you bought the property for a million and a half dollars uh, in 2017. The community redevelopment agency had a grant of up to a million dollars that helped you renovate the inside. Did you access all of that grant money during the renovation? Uh, we used a lot of it, not all of it. I mean, the, the truth is there's a lot of support. We couldn't have done it without the CRA. It's important that people understand that these times. No one does anything alone. No one. And we all come from different backgrounds, but when you care about your city and you care about something, you do it together. And this is really a true partnership. Chef, could you share with us the total investment before the uh, doors were finally opened in December? Uh, I would say it's on top of the purchase, there's another $4 million put into it. 
some of the requirements attached to the grant money have to do with employment. You mentioned 90 jobs at the restaurant. Uh, how many of those folks are from the Overtown neighborhood? Do you know? Yeah, I do know the majority, 70%, is from Overtown and nearby Wynwood. We also have from other underserved communities like Liberty City we're hiring from and a little Haiti and so on. We're, I mean, this is not a tagline. We are here to create jobs and we're here to create as many local jobs as we possibly can. If you go back to the core word, what a restaurant means, it means to restore your community. Our goal is to create a lot of jobs, but also bring back that hospitality in Overtown will thrive again. Is it fully staffed at these 90 jobs? It's not fully staffed because we haven't opened upstairs yet. Obviously, that's an event space, and it's not the right time to do that yet. But eventually, we will open upstairs, and we want that to be in daytime. We want that to be almost like a co-working space in the evening to have events there. So there's a lot of jobs that are beyond just servers and chefs and hosts that are traditional restaurant jobs. There's also other jobs. Chef, I know you're only six, seven weeks into it, but how's business so far? We've been very fortunate. We are almost every night at capacity. We obviously don't seat fully. We want to do this in the safest, best way possible, right? We have a beautiful outdoor patio with 90 seats. And then we, we turn on the weekend, we turn it several, you know, several times, but it's not about how many covers are you doing. It for me, I look at the response. We're a local restaurant and it's such a beautiful thing to become. I realized when we built this out, we thought it would be about 40% local. We would get some New York and we get some South Americans from Europe. Now we're only a local restaurant and that's good for us. That's become a very important local restaurant for Miami. And once people start traveling again, you know, we already worked out the opening king. And I just think there's something special about taking this opportunity and just show more gratitude and be grateful to be a local restaurant. That's Chef Marcus Samuelson, the owner and operator of Red Rooster Overtown. More of our conversation is coming up. Don't forget to download the WLRN app for iPhone and Android devices. And of course, if you're listening on Smart Speaker, thanks for telling that Smart Speaker to play WLRN. Still to come, our conversation continues, including how the recession is changing the restaurant industry, one that's so important for employment in South Florida. There will be other jobs coming out of this, but probably not as many as there were in December 2019. So we are forever changed. Just being an entrepreneur, being a chef, it's always a test. So I think if there's any group of people that can actually navigate through that, it is us. It is the restaurant business. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Across South Florida, the restaurant industry was expected to be the fastest-growing occupation, adding the most jobs over the next several years until COVID-19 hit. 231,000 people in South Florida worked in the restaurant and hotel business in December, according to state data. That's 20% fewer than a year ago. That represents over 56,000 lost jobs. 
The restaurant industry has been forced to change to stay viable, like creating outdoor dining spaces, incorporating takeout, buying personal protective gear. Some of the practices are likely to stick around even after more people are vaccinated against COVID-19. These were considerations foisted upon Chef Marcus Samuelson and his partners, who include Grove Bay Hospitality Group running the day-to-day operations at Samuelson's new restaurant, and real estate developer Michael Simpkins, who owns property in the area. Samuelson made his name in the New York restaurant industry and on television. After millions of dollars of investment, they were ready to open Red Rooster Overtown in March. That was delayed, and then delayed again before finally opening in December. We spoke with Samuelson about the changing nature of the restaurant business. How has the recession changed the business model for restaurants? 2020 is the hardest year we've ever gone through. Much harder than post 9-11, much harder than post 2008. There are 16 million people in America that work in independent restaurants. 11 to 12 direct restaurant jobs, and then there are 4 million jobs, farmers that deliver to restaurants, et cetera. Right? So it's a big community. You know, it's basically two New York City. And I would say at this moment, 40% of them are unemployed. And I'm not sure if everyone's going to get the jobs back. You know what I mean? So it's a, we, we are in the middle of a huge crisis. As chefs and as hospitality workers, we have to be very entrepreneurial. Consumer behavior has already changed. So we have to then think about as chefs and restaurant workers, where do we sit in on that? Where do we fit on that? Things like ghost kitchens, delivery, what does a home experience look like? You know, how does that speak to the restaurant product? How do we go back and forth between that? So there will be other jobs coming out of this, but probably not as many as there were in December 2019. So we are forever changed, and it's going to take us more than just finding the vaccine to come back, right? I think it's going to take until 23, 24 before we fully back to pre-pandemic numbers. How does this business model impact change the menu or maybe how the menu has had to change to fit this new business environment? Our menu is a little bit smaller. It's probably 25 to 30% smaller than we wanted it to be when we opened because we can't have as many people in the kitchen just because of uh, protocols, for example. But smaller, I mean, still a big menu. So that doesn't mean that it's not as good. It just means it's more focused. The two blessings of being both black but also an immigrant is that you're constantly pushed, right? You're constantly pushed. You constantly have to figure out a new situation. And you have to make the best out of it. That came to a full test this year, 2020. Not just internally, but also externally. You have to project greatness. Because why would otherwise people work for you or believe in you? It's a test. But I do know that just being an entrepreneur, being a chef, it's always a test. So I think if there's any group of people that can actually navigate through that, it is us. It is the restaurant business. How do you find that balance between the business reality that's necessary to have an ongoing concern and your ambitions to serve community the word balance you got to throw out okay i would like to sit here and tell you that oh it's balance it's not right that's the word that doesn't exist i work with people that some of them live in the shelters some of them were homeless without us some of the greatest co-workers that i have stay at the shelters four minutes walk from the restaurant my goal is for them to get out of that shelter and get their own apartment when we closed this summer 
We lost four members for parking tickets and had to go back to jail for parking tickets. These were folks you hired at Red Rooster yes. Overtown? Yes, yes. These are not middle-class issues. So when I feel like we have to close the restaurant, I understand what that does to some part of my population and staff. This is very, very harsh. So when those are your choices, you cannot not go all in. You have to acknowledge your privilege and go all in. And I am very fortunate. I know dishwashers, but I also know CEOs. And if you have that elevator that can go between both, it's my job to provide for the ones that had less opportunities. As a restaurant entrepreneur, you've also got investors. Mm -hmm. How do you engage with them, particularly with the kind of restaurant that you own and operate, not just license, but mm-hmm. like the Red mm-hmm. Rooster Harlem, Red Rooster Overtime. Sure. How do you manage that relationship and expectation? I'm very fortunate with my investors, uh, and I choose carefully who's part of that team. Because if you would have asked me 15, 20 years ago, I didn't have a choice. I took the investors that, was, that, was, that came to me. But part of having a platform is also that as much as I ask an investor, I interview them as well, because if they're not interested in the social justice piece, we're not a good match. That doesn't make them a bad person. You know what I mean? Not at all. You can be very transactional and that's what you want. Then we're not a good fit for this project. Everyone wants to walk into a busy restaurant that is packed and have celebrities, locals, and a feel-good environment. And that's one aspect of what we do, but that's not the whole package. So for me, it's very much about interviewing them as much as they interview me. And that's, that's privilege, right? That is privilege. And, and I have to acknowledge that, but that's also what I work towards. I work within food since I was 17 years old. So at this point in my career, I want to be selected. Was that intentional as you set out on this career path? No, but I think those two Narratives that I told you, coming here as an immigrant and coming from Africa, and you look at all the lies and all the things that are spewed out, all the misleading information that is told about black men and and immigrants, you have to, if you're in a position of power, then you have to change that narrative. And food actually has one of these last standing things that you can actually bring people together. Music and food, art, music and food. Food is one of those that we can actually still, all regardless, Republican, Democrat, Independent, we can all come together and say, this was delicious. What is this about? I'm curious. I now want to travel. I now want to experience coming to Overtown. So as a chef with a large platform, it's my job to bring that together. No, I didn't arrive as a 23-year-old kid to New York with that understanding. Absolutely not. But I knew I wanted to add value. I was ambitious. I didn't want that ambition to be lowered because of the color of my skin. Speaking with Chef Marcus Samuelson, he opened his first Miami restaurant in December in Overtown. Every episode of The Sunshine Economy is available via a podcast. Just search for Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app and be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a week. Thanks. Still to come, we talk about business during a social and racial reckoning. We have to have access to traditional bank loans, the traditional lending strategy, because the generational wealth in our community is just not there. 
This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Sixty-one and a half years ago, less than a mile from where Chef Marcus Samuelson would open his Red Rooster restaurant in Overtown, black people could not get served a sandwich. Segregated lunch counters in stores like Grant's Department Store and Jackson's Bryan's in downtown Miami were the scene of sit-ins. The effort lasted for a few weeks, with the black customers waiting to be served alongside white diners in 1959. Restaurants and race are part of the history of segregation and racism, a history communities are struggling to reckon with, particularly since the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer in May. While unemployment has fallen for all races since the worst of the pandemic-induced job cuts in March and April, it has dropped more slowly for blacks. And before the pandemic, unemployment was much higher in South Florida black neighborhoods than for the overall community. In 2018, Overtown's jobless rate was 24 percent, according to data from Miami-Dade County. When celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson began the process of opening a restaurant in Overtown, part of the deal with the local community redevelopment agency was a commitment to hire workers from the neighborhood. It wasn't an aim for Samuelson when he began his culinary career. He was born in Ethiopia, raised by adoptive parents in Sweden, and studied in France before coming to New York. But his social aims have become part of his business plan, and as much as he is known for his flavors, he has become a voice for black chefs and restaurant workers. His new book is The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. It was published about six weeks before he opened his newest restaurant in Overtown. In the Wall Street Journal, you wrote, quote, the pandemic has forced the food industry to confront key issues of racism and power. What are examples of some of those issues and how have they been confronted? Uh, I think we're starting to see the steps of that right now, right? As a lot of my Black African-American chef friends, not just in New York, but across the country, to begin with, first of all, we have to have access to traditional bank loans, the traditional lending strategy, right? Because the generational wealth in our community is just not there, right? So there is a traditional lending system that has to come back for entrepreneurs, for food entrepreneurs. It's not there yet, but I do know that companies are now leaning in and we need help from the big companies and it needs to be a blend between cities, local governments and, and federal programs and major companies that have done really well during the pandemic, i.e. the, you know, the Google, the Amazon, you know, you look at the COVID sort of entrepreneurs that are coming out as, you know, really the true winners out of a horrible situation like this, right? Because black and brown communities take the, the larger, uh, you know, if you think about cases, death, all of those things stays in our communities much, much longer a lot of the jobs that we have in our communities are not jobs that you can be doing from home. So the way we're invested into the pandemic is very, very different. So we're just going to need help and a, and a system that supports that in a very different way. It's not about just being supported during Black History Month. It's actually with a strategy that can build up communities over the next 10 to 15 years, because that's what's going to be needed to have our communities come back. It's very, very important. What does that structure look like as you think uh, uh, comprehensively about 
the evolution of this restaurant industry, particularly as it relates to black entrepreneurs, to other groups that have, as you mentioned, traditionally not had access to capital that uh, that whites have? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it's a, it's a great question to first to have the conversation. So making the awareness, right? That's a very important thing that you're doing right now, right? And other media hopefully continue to do. So for that puts local pressure. Then there is a combination between federal, local, but also public and private. You need private companies and investors to say, hey, this matters because if we don't do anything, it's going to show up on different sheets, right? If you don't feed entrepreneurship, this going to, there's many other numbers that this is going to show up on. And when none of those numbers are positive, we can, we can go through them one by one. So we do need help from the private investor side, the private side, the the bigger investors need to come and say, hey, I'm going to create a fund and allocate money for this. Then you also need help both on the local government, but also on federal government. So there's a combination between public and private, right? And even you look at our model, what we did in overtime, that's a combination between public and private. So there are structures here between public and private where I think our models to move forward. And then you can put numbers in there. You have to hire 70%, 60% locally, or whatever those numbers are, right? Uh, you have to have X amount there, a BIPOC, or whatever, because locally these numbers will look and feel different. A, create the awareness, have advocates, create pressure, and work collectively, public and private. This is not a Democrat issue, and this is not a Republican issue. This is an American issue that we have to solve. In your essay in the Wall Street Journal, published in December, you also wrote, quote, I'm encouraged by how our society and food industry have come together to build better, more equitable food systems and practices. So you're seeing evidence. Yep. Alrighty. An organization called Independent Restaurant Coalition came together out of this, right? We started in March and, you know, we're part of putting pressure on the White House in terms of the restaurant bills and so on. I wish we would have created this independent restaurant coalition before that, but this is really what was, you know, forced us to come together. And that's there now forever. So we can have a seat at the table. And sometimes crisis does create these situations that something comes out of that, that is more systemic and better afterwards. So that was needed. There are many local partners that are saying, like, we want a seat at the table. There are many companies that said that is, is we're talking to right now that saying, hey, we're in this for the long haul. And I just hope and pray that they truly are because we, we're going to need that. So you can't just have people, huge companies, reaping enormous amount of benefits out of this situation and not doing any give back plan. And I'm not talking about taxes. I'm talking about truly having a strategy to support BIPOC uh, entrepreneurship because it's going to be needed because that will create jobs in communities that need it more than ever. That's Chef Marcus Samuelson. He opened his first Miami restaurant in December in Overtown. Be sure to catch WLRN on social media. Look for us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to follow. 
Also, look for the web posts for each program by going to WLRN.org, click on the radio tab, and then look for Sunshine Economy. Still to come, helping the independent restaurant industry survive the pandemic. Once you take restaurants out of a community, you're taking the lights out. If we take restaurants out of our community, that means that our neighborhood is going to go dark after 7 o'clock. That is super, super dangerous on so many different levels. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Please sign up for the Sunshine Economy podcast. Just search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe so you don't miss a week. Thanks. The House of Representatives is expected to begin moving on another economic relief bill this week. The most recent stimulus package includes special provisions for restaurants. Small restaurants are eligible for bigger Paycheck Protection Program loans if their sales have dropped by at least 25%. The loan money can be forgiven if it's spent on certain things like salaries and rent. Red Rooster Overtown received almost $79,000 in the first round of the program, saving four jobs. The restaurant wasn't open yet. It was supposed to start serving diners in March and then again in June, but each time the pandemic paused the opening. It's Chef Marcus Samuelson's first restaurant in South Florida. He's best known for his travel food television program and his Red Rooster Harlem restaurant, which received a Paycheck Protection Loan for between $1 million to $2 million in the spring, saving 142 jobs there. We spoke about how independent restaurants are surviving the pandemic. President Biden has called his initial financial stimulus legislation a down payment. What do you think the restaurant industry needs, if anything, from any fiscal stimulus legislation out of Congress and the White House? We need grants. We need a, we need a long-term grant plan. We don't need more loans. We need grants. Something different than the Paycheck Protection Program, for instance? That's a start. I look at that as a short term. But we do need really written in grants because this is a situation we've never been in, Right. And you think about the average of restaurants might make four to seven percent profit, right? So these are not businesses that are making 30, 40 percent. These are just like many families are check by check, living check by check. That's how you have to envision restaurants, small mom and pop family businesses are living check by check. When you're on the four to five percent profit margin and you're running a family business, you run out of money circa in June. Do you know what I mean? You're done. So that's what I'm saying. To sign restaurants up with more loans, it's not going to be the solution. What we need are long-term grant writing that are really thinking for the next five to 15 years, how are we going to get out of this together? What are our communities going to look like? Because once you take restaurants out of a community, you're taking the lights out. Restaurants retail, but even more importantly, restaurant is evening retail. So if we take restaurants out of our community, that means that our neighborhood is going to go dark after seven o'clock. That is super, super dangerous on so many different levels, job creation, but also in terms of just safety in communities. So we need these restaurants, not just for quality of life, but also for so many other reasons and job creations, of course. And that takes planning. 
these, what I've seen is a lot of short-term solutions and they're great because there are short-terms and that's needed. But if we're gonna get out of this and actually create the next generation of restaurant entrepreneurs, we need long-term grants and we need to sit down and collaborate on that, on how we unpack that together. You've been a recipient of a grant through the uh, Overtown Park West Community Redevelopment Agency, helping renovate um, the building in which you purchased and, and now run Red Rooster Overtown. Is that the kind of grant structure that you'd be advocating for longer term? Each business and each locally looks different, right? But you have a, a model of what a business should look like, how many employees should they have, right? Meaning pre-pandemic, like when it's all said and done, how many of those jobs stayed in the community, right? So there, there are structures there that you can actually build up, right? There are restrictions to making sure that the job stays in the community, absolutely. And but locally, each place locally, that would look different. But it is important that we support our local business in a grant form. It is important that those jobs stay locally. And it's important that those goes to independent restaurants. You know, one of the things that when you realize that the previous administration didn't understand the difference between independent restaurants and restaurant chains, because the first uh, round table of discussion was only with, you know, was majority major restaurant chains like Chick-fil-A's and stuff like that, right? They have nothing to do with an independent restaurant. The word restaurant is so vast. So you have to separate what chain restaurant looks like versus independent restaurant looks like. And that's really what I'm talking about. Our only speak for the independent restaurant. You know, the diversity of our audience and guests that comes and see us uh, in ages and races and culture, it's been, it's really been a love letter and it's something that when you build something, you're always worried, will they come? And Miami has shown up even through the pandemic. And it's something that I'm forever grateful for. Speaking with Chef Marcus Samuelson, his newest restaurant is Red Rooster Overtown in Miami. Now still to come, checking in with a banker, baker and cleaner in the pandemic. This is my only problem loan, so I guess I should be fortunate that we've only got one. Miami is a, is a perfect example of what happens, why companies cannot scale. My income probably was slashed by 70%. It's time to get my groove back. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Two weeks ago, Pilar Guzman Zavala was talking to Joe Biden just a few days before he was sworn in as president of the United States. Zavala owns and runs Half Moon Empanadas with her husband. We've been hearing from her most weeks since September about how she and her company are getting along. Last week, she had another opportunity to talk with a national leader. This time, it was a small private Zoom conference with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Zavala was one of seven small business owners invited to speak with the Secretary about small business, federal stimulus efforts like the Paycheck Protection Program, and the economy. Zavala was the first to speak, and when she started, she wasn't sure of the formal salutation for the new Treasury Secretary. I didn't know how to pronounce it, but apparently you call her Madam Secretary of the Treasurer. 
I was calling her Miss Secretary. So you're going to laugh at this. Because <laughs> uh, I was the one talking to her, the first one. And then the other two or three entrepreneurs that I spoke to her will, will call her Madam Secretary. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I was calling her Miss Secretary. <laughs> it was her second day in the job. She was uh, interested to hear about our perspective with the PPP and with everything that was that we were going through. I didn't prepare any script or anything. I just said, my experience with PPP was this, you know, we went to three banks, a large, uh, a medium, and, and then the small one who was the one that actually approved the PPP. And I said how difficult I saw it was the process for most of my friends that are like tiny entrepreneurs, the one, the two, the three people companies. And so then I gave her my suggestions, uh, very, I think, very specific uh, suggestions, which was that it's important to strengthen the, the community lending organizations, community development uh, finance agencies that actually are more in tune with lending to true small businesses. And then I share with her my perspective on the whole system problem, because to me, the PPP just show the lowest point of how the system is broken, right? But the reality is that if you look at the numbers before COVID on financing of minority businesses, you know, they are minimal. Like there is really little money going into these companies. And so then you wonder why the sizes are smaller and they're left behind, right? So those are statistics. It's not because I am a Latina entrepreneur. And so I said, I think that the system needs to understand, so the government needs to understand that there's got to be funding for each stage of the companies. You have to fund organizations that help the small business in the ground, the tiny one, but then you have to be able to help them graduate to the next level to maybe a small local bank and then that to the next one. And so for that, we need to be able to connect the resources, to provide the resources. She asked me three or four questions. I shared with the secretary the example of Miami. I said, Miami is a perfect example of what happens, why companies cannot scale. We are like startup activity. We're number one. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, but then we're the lowest in scaling, right? And so why is that? Well, it's really hard to get access to information, opportunities, financing. I was that for many years. That's why I am so passionate about it. It took 10 banks for me to get financing. I lived it. I was one of those companies. I'm still a small business. It needs to change. As for her business, Half Moon Empanadas, Zavala says this week she expects to make an important decision, hiring a director of operations as she gets ready to open two new stores. A week ago, American National Bank in Broward County had loaned out about $18 million in the new paycheck protection loans under the second draw of the program. Now that's up to $22 million. CEO Ginger Martin says the interest has been steady, but not the demand the bank experienced during the first round back in the spring. The people who have qualified are just so grateful to be getting uh, this help because they, they do need it. In fact, I was talking to a physical therapist and she said, boy, this couldn't have come at a better time because uh, she needed it to literally make payroll. We definitely had all of our restaurants uh, come back. And the good thing, too, restaurants got more this time around. They had the three and a half times uh, their average monthly payroll instead of two and a half. Across the street from the bank, we've got a business that does uh, kitchens, high, really high-end kitchens. And I was talking to him, and his business is really, uh, you know, off. His wife has a uh, furniture store. 
So they've seen some people that have returned some purchases. And so then they've, they've got this whole situation of a you know, chargeback. So they put it on a credit card and, and then it gets uh, run, you know, run back through. Now, conversely, I had a customer in this week that does uh, flooring, carpet, and d different types of flooring. And they said that their business has been strong because people that are working from home, you know, sitting there at home going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of looking at this old carpet or I want to do something with this floor. And so there are people that are spending money to fix up their homes because they're working from home. You know, one of the things I had to make a decision that wasn't really fun as far as my, my January, you know, bottom line, uh, I do have one loan that uh, we decided to put on non-accrual uh, because this loan, even though we had given them payment deferrals, in fact, we had actually given them three and then there, we tried to turn them into an interest only and they were like, we, we just can't afford it. This is a, um, like a vacation rental. Putting it on non-accrual meant that I had to reverse, you know, $165,000 worth of accrued interest. It still has a good raise value. And so after it's all said and done, I don't think the bank will lose any, you know, any money on this, but that was one of my big decisions as we close out January. I know it was the, what we needed you know, to do because this, this is my only problem loan. So I guess I should be fortunate that we've only got one. That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin in Broward County. The cleaner of the trio of women we're following is Sherry Rudolph. Her janitorial business is called Legally Clean. It was hit hard during the pandemic closures last year, but she has hit the ground running in 2021. Last week, she told us about a promise she made to herself to develop new business. Already, it's starting to pay off. Remember I told you that I was setting up a schedule of calling 10 prospects per day? There has been three really magnificent uh, opportunities uh, from those phone calls. Post-construction for a hotel in a condominium community um, in the West Palm Beach area. Also, uh, an opportunity in the uh, Miami area and then spoke with another company in the Broward County area that has some ongoing projects that they like to consider me for. One will allow me to uh, clean uh, over a million square feet, which could be a very lucrative opportunity for me. And the other two have um, upcoming uh, projects uh, that I would not have known about had I not uh, started making those calls to the prospective contacts. Yes, I have definitely been able to pull in some fish. Basically went to go see the million square foot project. It's looking pretty positive. It's so large that I'm going to be needing a partner. And so I was able to take a partner who was accustomed to working on projects that large. It's really important to network and also sometimes to couple with other companies that when you're not able to handle projects of that size. I had dropped the ball in terms of initiating contact with prospects during the pandemic, um, primarily because most people were either working from home or they weren't taking your calls because, you know, because of COVID. And the second thing I've done is to make more contacts by phone, also uh, join more network groups, such as the Florida Women's Business Center, as well as another group, which is primarily a janitorial companies that work together to help each other and also to build each other businesses. I mean, it's been really tough the last few months. Uh, my income uh, probably was slashed in like by 70%. It's been a tough road. And so it's time to get 
my groove back <laughs> and, and move into uh, new opportunities. I feel very positive. I feel that uh, things are moving uh, even better than I had anticipated. I feel that there are uh, opportunities that have been dormant probably for the last eight to 10 months, but things seem to be opening back up. I am getting a lot more positive responses than during uh, the first few months of COVID. Sherry Rudolph is the cleaner of our banker, baker, and cleaner trio of women we hear from most weeks about how they're getting along in the pandemic economy. Follow us on social media. Look for WLRN on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Be sure to sign up for the podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And don't forget to catch the web post of each and every episode at WLRN.org. Just look for the radio tab and then scroll down to Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.